Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We thank you and welcome you to the Wednesday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. It's good to see you on the radio, on the satellite, and on YouTube. You can find us there right now. Search Bloomberg Global News. Because I'm confused. And if you listen to this broadcast from time to time, you know that's not unusual. As we talk about new deals on top-line spending levels that are identical to the deals we saw back in June, when we have contempt hearings, in this case, for the son of a president, and he actually shows up. That happened today. We were going to talk to Michael Zeldin about Donald Trump, and we're going to do that in a moment. But who would have thought this would take place? Maybe you saw it coming. Oversight committee hearing holding Hunter Biden in contempt for not showing up to a deposition that he actually showed up for. They wanted to do it behind closed doors. This starts to get very complicated. Nancy Mace couldn't believe it when he walked in. The representative on the Republican side of the dais here had it out with Jared Moskowitz, the Democrat. This is just a taste of what it was like. In you the are room. the epitome of white privilege coming into the oversight committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed. What are you afraid of? You have no balls to come up here. And M- Mr. Chairman, point of inquiry. Mr. Chairman. If the gentle lady wants to hear from Hunter Biden, we can hear from him right now, Mr. Chairman. Let's take a vote and hear from Hunter Biden. What are you afraid of? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Order, order, order. Are women allowed to speak in here or no? And that's just how it started. I'm still not sure, though, if you show up, how that means you didn't show up. But maybe Michael Zeldin can help us. I've got a lot of questions Uh, For Michael, of course, former federal prosecutor, former special counsel to Robert Mueller uh, while at the DOJ. Michael, you've been on my mind, and it's great to see you. I'm glad that you could come back to join us here early in 2024, because, boy, this is going to be a year, uh, and not the least uh, of which is because of this Hunter Biden case. Um, I want to ask you about Donald Trump, but can you make sense out of this? Can you hold someone in contempt for a deposition they showed up for? Yeah, you can. You shouldn't, but you can. The proposition here is they gave him a subpoena to appear behind closed doors for a deposition. He says, I'm not showing up behind closed doors. I'm only showing up in public because I don't trust you. Well, people who receive subpoenas don't get to determine the protocols by which the testimony is taken. So that's sort of the you know pissing match, if you will, between the two sides. The question is really... Mm-hmm. Why are they even bothering to subpoena him in the first place? What value do they see when, if I were his lawyer and he's represented ably by Abby Lowell, I would just say, I'm taking the Fifth Amendment with respect to any question that you have to ask me in private because I don't trust you guys. And 
I've been indicted in California, and I'm not about to jeopardize my legal case there by answering any questions that you guys have here. So it's really political mm -hmm. theater. This is not really about truth gathering or fact finding. It's just about show. Well, that's a pretty clear answer, I suspect, but it won't stop the process to your point. In terms of that indictment, though, in California, he's heading for L.A. next, apparently. What's in store for Hunter Biden when he gets there? Ultimately, a trial, unless they work out a plea deal. He's facing tax charges out there that are serious. He failed to report income and failed to file timely his tax returns worth, you know, over a million dollars in lost tax revenue. He did ultimately pay it back. But, you know, the fact that you sort of returned the money that you stole from the bank doesn't get you necessarily off the hook for bank robbery. It may hmm. get you a plea bargain to something less than bank robbery. But nonetheless, these are serious charges and he has to account for it. He has said that it was because of his drug addiction and un understand well the problems of uh, drug addiction um, in family members and it's complicated stuff, but that's not a defense unless you're pleading some sort of diminished mental capacity. Uh, I think that mm. he has to figure out what is the best thing for him to do. I think the best thing for him to do is probably work out some sort of plea like they tried to do when he was facing charges in Delaware, misdemeanor charges. But we'll see now whether the prosecutors out in California are you know, as willing to compromise with him as the Delaware yeah. uh, special counsel was. Well, Hunter Biden was the big moment uh, today. Donald Trump's moment came yesterday, Michael Zeldin. This is really something as he tests this idea of presidential immunity and his legal team uh, got a, a fairly chilly reception uh, from this three-judge appellate panel. This is what Axios is now calling Trump's new Fifth Avenue moment. As his lawyer, John Sauer, was asked by one of the judges about this idea of, well, we'll let you listen. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is no. Is, my answer is qualified, yes. There is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. Imagine SEAL Team 6 being used to assassinate a political rival. Maybe you can imagine that. The idea here, though, Michael, is that if not impeached and convicted, then you cannot, in fact, criminally uh, prosecute a, a former president or a sitting president. Is that how you understand this argument? Does it hold any water? That's how I understand the argument. I don't think it holds any water. And in fact, in preparation for our conversation, I went back and read the Office of Legal Counsel memoranda on these issues. Remember, this sort of came up in the Mueller investigation. Mueller said he might have but couldn't indict Trump for the stuff that he investigated because there is a memo that says you can't indict a sitting president. But that memo goes on to say, of course, you can indict a former president. And the case law is pretty clear on that. And so it's pretty settled that the proposition that Trump is proposing is an outlier and probably will not be sustained by the Court of Appeals or even, mm -hmm. I think, the Supreme Court. Well, talk to me more about that, because a lot of folks seem to think that's 
where this will be decided. Will will the Supreme Court take this up if it goes that far? Yeah, so Joe, that's a great question. And I think the answer to the question is it depends on the nature of the order that the appellate court issues. So if this appellate court gives a three to zero unanimous decision forcefully suggesting that the notion of immunity for a former president in criminal matters is absurd, then the Supreme Court might say, you know what, we don't have to decide this issue. We'll wait till a more complicated issue that raises this question. But in this case, Hmm. the proposition that you are entitled to qualified immunity for inciting an insurrection is so, you know, sort of much a no-brainer that we're going to just rely on the Court of Appeals and leave it there. And remember, they asked, Special Counsel Smith asked the Supreme Court to take this straight away, to skip this middle ground. And the court said, no, yeah. no, no, we want to hear from this middle ground court. And so if this middle ground court gives them a very strong, analyzed decision, they might say, we don't need to do it. They got it right. Let's get this case to trial. And then we'll have a trial in March. So it sounds like that's what you see happening. The skepticism on this three-judge panel, if this goes all the way up to the full-blown D.C. appeals court, do you assume those judges will feel the same way? I think that's what what you're suggesting. And that means the trial does begin long before the election. Yeah. So the rights that Trump has are to, one, let's say he loses three to nothing in this court or even two to one in this court. He can then go, he can seek a review of that decision by the full members of that same court. I think there are 11, and that's called en banc review, total review. And that's discretionary. Those 11 judges can say, you know, not, we don't need to hear this. The three-judge panel got it right. Then that forecloses that. Then he can file what's called a writ of certiori, a request by the Supreme Court to hear it. And the Supreme Court can say yes or, or no to that. If they say yes... And let's say that makes it to them sometime in early February. Then I think the March trial date is unlikely. But it doesn't mean that it can't happen in May or June if the Supreme Court acts quickly as they did in the uh, Nixon Watergate tapes. And they have that power to do that. Wow. That would be the one trial, though, you see happening before the election, right? I think it's most likely because Eileen Cannon the judge who has the Mar-a-Lago case seems to be slow walking it a bit. Now, if this case gets Mm -hmm. delayed, if there is, you know, a long delay in this case, Eileen uh, Cannon could set her trial date in May and go forward with it. But I expect that Trump will raise the same immunity in that case, too. So I think we need to get an answer on immunity before we know what the trial schedules are, both in Mar-a-Lago case and in January 6th case. Well, it's great to talk to you. Good to see you, Michael Zeldin. We thank you, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin, with us once again here on Bloomberg. As we assemble our panel, can't wait to hear what they think. Rick Davis is with us, of course, Republican strategist, Bloomberg politics contributor, joined today by Democratic analyst Caitlin Legacki at Four Corners uh, Public Affairs. Rick, we've talked a lot about the idea of Donald Trump spending the bulk of his campaign in a courtroom. And it is sounding like after we talk to Michael Zeldin that that's exactly what's going to happen. He'll be back in New York tomorrow for the civil trial. How do you do both at once? 
Yeah, well, I mean, he's making that decision. I mean, yesterday's appearance was totally elective on his part. He didn't have to go there. He didn't That's do right. anything. And and he could have been in Iowa campaigning. He could have been in New Hampshire campaigning. Look, if he loses New Hampshire, his campaign is going to look at him and go, what the heck were we doing sitting in a courtroom when we could have been in the state campaigning? <laughs> so uh, yeah. I feel for those guys. I mean, they're sharing you know, the former president with the legal system. And that that can't be a very, you know, constructive way to spend time in the middle of an election. So uh, mm -hmm. it's his choice in many of these cases. And he chooses to not campaign and to to defend his uh, rights as a uh, plaintiff. So, Caitlin, at what point does that become advantage Biden, assuming that these are the nominees? And well, I guess I shouldn't assume that, but let's say it's a rematch. At what point does this start to count against Donald Trump when he enters a general election field? I mean, it, it immediately reminds moderate and independent voters of the chaos that he created while he was president. So, it, you know, while he believes that going to court every day and presenting himself as a victim of political persecution works to his benefit, I think where it really, you know, helps Biden is that it just you know, time warps everyone back four years to to what we went through with the chaos and the legal issues and reminds anyone who's even remotely open uh, to either candidate what they should expect for the next four years out of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, though, Rick, it seems like it's advantage Trump as long as it's the primary field, the Republican primary field that we're talking about. Or do you see that start to flip at some point in the next couple of months? Well, there's no question that Trump's campaign started to improve once Bragg in New York uh, uh, indicted him. And you saw an yeah. increase in fundraising and he became the victim, as Caitlin said. This is his entire campaign message. I am a victim. You're victims. We're all defending each other here. You know, they're really coming after you. And it's 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 all very populist and and very outsider and very anti-government. So uh, I don't think that's ever going to change. And the fact that he gets a stage to do that, you know, in a courtroom yeah. uh, where he can walk out and give his talking points of the day in front of a massive crowd of reporters, you know, that, that's just as good to him as a rally and a lot cheaper. <laughs> well, how about that? The king of free media. There is something to be said for that, I suppose, uh, Caitlin, because he's going to end up leading the newscast every time he shows up in a courtroom. He is, although, you know, we've already seen him run into issues related to gag orders and, uh, you know, in some of his yeah. other trials. And so I wouldn't, you know, if that is their entire strategy, then I think that uh, they should at least have a plan hmm. B in place, because I can't imagine that uh, especially judges in the D.C. circuit are going to have a high tolerance yeah. for those shenanigans. Um, well, part of the strategy apparently includes a return to Fox News tonight, counter-programming the final GOP debate. We'll talk about it next with the panel. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Last time Donald Trump appeared live on Fox News was back in April of 2022, almost two years and it hasn't been the smoothest ride since then. He's spent a lot of time criticizing the network, and tonight will make his big return. This 
Ought to be interesting. Of course, it's all part of counter-programming the actual debate that's taking place around the same time on CNN. That'll be between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. This is the last throwdown before actual voting takes place, actual caucusing on Monday. And look, Donald Trump could be on that stage if he wanted to be, but not again. So this is going to be an interesting exercise to see the former governor of South Carolina in Nikki Haley and now the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, just the two of them on stage. They're both going to get a lot of time and presumably will have a chance to talk about actual policy. What a concept. Let's reassemble the panel because, you know, a lot of people are going to be watching Trump for the fireworks. Uh, Rick Davis is with us, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist, Caitlin Legacki from Four Corners Public Affairs is here too, Democratic analyst. Uh, Rick, it's going to be interesting, another split screen night here. And I wonder for the candidates themselves, the, the Trump show is its own thing, but for the candidates themselves, if there's going to be any real opportunity to move the needle here. Yeah, I, I think there'll be uh, an interesting debate between uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Look, I mean, they're running neck and neck in Iowa for second place. Um, we've all been talking about does second place matter in Iowa this year. And uh, I think the, yeah. the the conclusion is yes, certainly for Nikki Haley. And it may be the only thing that sustains Ron DeSantis beyond uh, Iowa. So uh, I think there are real stakes to tonight's debate. Um, it's unfortunate that... Um, the real contest uh, in, in in this case, uh, Nikki and, and Ron, are going to be on CNN. And most of the Republican caucus goers, I promise you, will be watching the Fox News <laughs> uh, interview uh, with Donald Trump okay. because that's what they watch every night. It's nothing special. <laughs> well, then I guess it's a pretty good strategy. Uh, Caitlin, he's never had to show up at a debate. He has held a commanding lead throughout the process. Uh, and we're reminded by the New York Times, this is his first live interview on any major news network since that so-called town hall last May on CNN that got the head of the network fired. And that was because Donald Trump just ran all over the whole process. And I suspect he will do the same tonight. What are these folks going to see when they tune into Fox? Is, does he take the opportunity to insult the network? Oh, I think he can't help himself. Uh, I think that's absolutely what he's going to do. But I, I think he's also doing this because he does see the numbers coming out of New Hampshire. He does see Nikki Haley closing in on him there. Uh, and he really needs to reestablish his leadership there. So what he's doing is actually pretty smart, which is that, as Rick said, your average conservative caucus goer, primary voter in New Hampshire is going to be watching Fox. And so he is owning all of that oxygen uh, while, you know, governors Haley and DeSantis uh, fight it out for second place on a network that your average Republican primary or voter or caucus goer just isn't going to be watching. Well, it sounds to me like the field is set then, Rick, as we head into Iowa. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis aren't going to have a breakout based on what happens tonight, right? Yeah, I think tonight's CNN debate is more about what ad goes up as a closing argument the next morning, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, they, they, if somebody falters, if there's a, a, a punch well landed on the jaw of one of the other candidates, uh, that could actually make it into the weekend closing. Uh, but otherwise, um, uh, most Republicans aren't going to see what happens on that CNN debate. Uh, lots of Democrats will watch it, but because uh, I'm sure it's good <laughs> theater. But uh, uh, yeah, I think we've all agreed that once again, Donald Trump gets the lifeline 
from Fox Media uh, to uh, give him something to do when he otherwise would be left out of the narrative. Latest numbers coming from Trafalgar Group uh, on the Iowa Republican Caucus. Donald Trump, 52. And then you've got Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis tied at 18. So Donald Trump has a 34-point lead going into the caucus uh, at this stage here. Caitlin Ann Seltzer and others would tell you that, that that's a done deal. Will he win Iowa? Oh, of course. Yeah. I, I, I mean, anyone who's ever done the Iowa caucus has dreamed of a scenario where they're at 52%. It just, it's unprecedented. Um, so I, I think that's absolutely locked the the real question is how does this affect new hampshire does this kill nikki haley's momentum or does this you know basically put the last nail in in ron DeSantis's coffin uh which would give you know theoretically haley a clearer path in new hampshire um and so i i agree that that's the whole ball game for for what iowa means rick i want you to take us to school on something called momentum which we talk about uh affectionately around this time of the election cycle, but you've actually harnessed it. You've actually realized it. When we look at the numbers moving beyond Iowa and New Hampshire right now, all of that could change immediately based on the performance that we see specifically coming out of New Hampshire. I know you've got your eyes on Nikki Haley, but talk about that just kind of more in general, how she could turn this around, how any candidate might based on momentum in the first two states. Yeah, I, I think people need to really understand the dynamic politically, right? The the Iowa caucus is an organizational nightmare, right? It is not a primary, <laughs> doesn't have a lot of people participate. In fact, considering how cold it's going to be and how snowy it is in Iowa right now, you got to assume participation is going to be way down. And and But that is yeah. usually what upsets the apple cart. In other words, it hurts more people than it helps over time. Uh, in New Hampshire, it is a true primary and everybody can vote, right? It's an open primary. Independents participate sometimes as much as 40 percent of the turnout on primary day is non-Republican. And so this is a chance for people to really speak, the first chance. And that usually has a different outcome than Iowa. And that usually is a lifeline to challengers, challengers like Nikki Haley in this case, because you got to remember Donald Trump's running as an incumbent. None of these people should even be close to running against an incumbent. I mean, you know, Joe Biden's an incumbent running and he's in the 60 percent and he's not even on the ballot. So this is this is the chance that everybody has to try and play catch up. And then it is all about momentum. Every poll you've seen in South Carolina, Florida, the Super Tuesday dates, they change overnight, depending upon the outcome of this race in New Hampshire. I hope you heard what Rick said. They change overnight. That's why it's comical that we're obsessing over polls nine months ago, national polls, but even calls into question what we're looking at here in the next month of voting even. Caitlin, can Nikki Haley pull that off? I mean, anything is possible in politics. I think one of the the things about the primary calendar that a lot of folks don't appreciate is that all of these campaigns have been spending the last year really focused on two states, maybe three. And where this really tests a campaign's ability to function and organize is, it. let's say Nikki Haley comes out of New Hampshire with an upset victory. She's gonna have a huge influx of money. 
but she's also going to have to carry that momentum forward. Luckily, she has South Carolina probably in her pocket. But then there's all the Super Tuesday states where if, you know, your campaign has not previously had the opportunity to build up that staffing, build up that strategy, you're really playing whack-a-mole and leapfrogging from one state to the next. And it, it's it's hard. Um but that's kind of why this is so exciting and interesting. And it really is a good test for who is going to be the best general election candidate. Fascinating what we're about to learn and great analysis from Rick and Caitlin. I'm glad you're both with us. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Hour 2 of Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lines, and it looks like we're getting ready for the hearings uh, already, uh, Kaylee. It was right around this time yesterday we, we got the statement from Walter Reed that yeah. kind of blew our minds about what had happened to the Secretary of Defense. Prostate cancer was the answer. But there was so much that we still didn't understand. And they want answers on Capitol Hill now. Mike Rogers, House Armed Services Committee, in a letter says it's unacceptable that the Department of Defense, the White House, and Congress were not informed of the Secretary's position or capacity, and they are scheduling a hearing into this. So the, the inquiry is underway. Well, and of course, the White House is acting as well. The chief of staff at the White House has now directed all, not just the Department of Defense, of but everything in the cabinet, essentially, to think they to have say, to be told. well, that the fact that this system wasn't in place already blows my mind. I mean, Joe, the other thing about yesterday was as we learned the news that prostate cancer is the reason for Secretary Austin's hospitalization, so too apparently did the White House, even though they yeah. knew he was hospitalized days after the fact, mind right. you. They didn't know either that it was prostate cancer he was dealing with. And the, the lack of communication here, I think, has baffled everyone, Congress included. Well, that's for sure. He's still hospitalized, yeah. correct? I mean, to our knowledge, although the prognosis is, is good, the according to Walter Reed. Yes, of course. We don't know what brought the severe pain that sent him back to the hospital or, frankly, much else uh, after that, certainly when it comes to the line of communication. That's why I wanted to talk to the general about this, uh, because I suspect he's got feelings about it. General Mark Kimmett, uh, retired Army General, of course, with us back on Bloomberg. And General, it's good to see you. Uh, 
how did this hit you when you first heard about it? Were you surprised that there was not more protocol in place or at least protocol followed in this case? Well, I think it's actually the latter, protocol not followed. Look, I know Lloyd Austin, have known him for 35 years, intensely private man, but in some cases you give up that privacy when you take a position like Secretary of Defense. There are protocols. I remember in 2008 when I was at Department of Defense, Secretary Gates had broken his arm in a slip at his quarters. The next morning I'm in a meeting with him in a sling. I'm briefing him. Photographer comes in, takes a picture of the secretary, uh, completely functional, completely operational as the uh, Secretary of Defense and probably bored by the guy briefing him. But that was information that got out quickly and as a result, nobody ever heard of this issue because it was handled so well. This, in my mind, was just mistakes, if not a comedy of errors. Okay, but what's the consequence of these mistakes, General? Is this just, frankly, a bad look? The idea that the White House and the Pentagon are not communicating that protocol wasn't forward, followed? Or was there real risk here, given that during this hospital stay, according to Walter Reed, he hasn't actually been incapacitated. He hasn't gone under anesthesia or anything like that. I don't think there's any risk at all. Uh, there is a procedure by which uh, transfer of authority happens, in this case between the Secretary of Defense and the Deputy Secretary of Defense, very similar to what happens when the President goes under anesthesia. So uh, if there was a problem because that because of that transfer of authority to the deputy, uh, because that's the wrong person, well, then you pick the wrong deputy. But in fact, uh, Secretary Hicks is eminently qualified to stand in for the Secretary of Defense. Should she have been given a heads up? They, they found Kathleen Hicks in Puerto Rico on vacation. I guess it's a good thing that there would be uh, U.S. backhaul, U.S. infrastructure there for her to do her job. But should she have been allowed to go on vacation knowing this was scheduled? Well, sure, because again, uh, first of all, the Deputy Secretary uh, travels with a pretty extensive comms team for this very reason, that if uh, mm -hmm. there is a need for uh, her to take over, that she's ready to do it on a moment's notice. I used to do that when I was an assistant to the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. A huge comms package. Uh, it was formally done, handed over to her. She was ready. The fact that she was in Puerto Rico shouldn't make a difference. She could have been at 50,000 feet in an airplane. Um, so uh, this continuity of command is something that's uh, important, if not almost sacred, to the military. Does it strike you as odd, General, that it took days for the White House to learn this information, that no one at the White House realized there hadn't been communication with Austin for days? What does that signal about the the cooperation between the Pentagon and the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue? Well, uh, I, I would say that it is rare that on a daily basis, Secretary of Defense calls the White House. On the other hand, there are dozens of staff officers uh, that are talking to the White House, the State Department, and other agencies every day. So the real question is, did that lack of conversation between uh, Austin himself and the White House affect the normal continuity of operations? And I'd say probably not. How does this end, uh, General? We've got a few other things we want to ask you about, but I just wonder what is going to come, for instance, of this inquiry on Capitol Hill, maybe new protocol that we're hearing about from the White House. Will there be a full readout on what took place here? 
Oh, I'm sure there will. That's the purpose of congressional investigations. And I hope that there won't be a new protocol, but just the message of reinforcing the existing protocol that has worked so well for years and years. Uh, General, to switch gears here, you alluded to the idea that this is obviously a time in which the U.S. is enmeshed in many different conflicts around the world, including, of course, what's happening in the Middle East. We know overnight that the Houthis in the Red Sea have launched an attack, a scale at which we hadn't seen yet at this point. 18 drones, three anti-ship missiles, all of those intercepted by U.S. and U.K. forces. But we understand here at Bloomberg that the U.S. is now considering retaliation for that. What would appropriate retaliation look like? Well, look, it should be a comprehensive approach. We shouldn't rush into this blindly, but candidly, I think we've been preparing this, these options for quite some time. Uh, I think uh, the real question and the only question for uh, Central Command and the other warfighting headquarters is, do we wait until a ship gets hit and the crew possibly injured, or do we take a preemptive strike uh, knowing that they're going to continue to fight until something drastic is done? So I think uh, all I would say at this point is we got the right guys in the command positions. Uh, let's wait to see what happens. But I have no doubt that those radar sites that are directing some of these operations will be the first to go if there is that tough decision to send an armed uh, capability into uh, Yemen to wipe out their capabilities. What capability would that require, General? What would that look like? I'm assuming we're not talking about boots on the ground. Oh, no, no. I'm, I, you know, we can do this with cruise missiles. We can do this with uh, uh, JDAMs fired from the sky. There are a lot of different capabilities. And, I, and, and I'm glad you asked that question, Joe. I don't see anything uh, in uh, the offing that would have American boots on the ground or anybody's boots on the ground. Uh, they, these mm -hmm. are static targets for the most part, some mobile, but we've got some pretty good intelligence capability that doesn't realize, need uh, eyes on the prize or boots on the ground. But isn't the concern that ultimately it could escalate the situation to a point where potentially boots on the ground may be necessary? Right now we're talking about Iranian proxies here, but upset them too much. Don't you risk awakening the actual bear and potentially direct confrontation with Iran? Well, uh, that's a choice that Iran has to make. If, in fact, the bear is, the, is actually not the bear, but the cat's paw that is directing Hezbollah, the Houthis, the Hashid in Iraq, uh, the uh, um, Hamas inside of Gaza, it seems like every terrorist organization starts with H, uh, then uh, eventually there's going to have to be some sort of uh, decision about what to do next. I wrote an article this morning uh, for Political EU, parenthetically, in a blatant attempt to do some self-promotion, talking about what I believe to be the next step, which is uh, we sent a pretty clear message with the Carter Doctrine uh, and sitting inside that uh, uh, Capitol when Carter delivered that State of the Union speech was a young senator named Biden. It's time for us to restate that doctrine, which says uh, if, if any nation or their proxies attack American vital interests, then we need to respond in any way appropriate to include military force. We need to give Iran sort of that last chance to do the right thing. Well, we talk about last chances. Are you among those worried about a wider conflict, General, or can we keep this contained? Uh, that's a question you really ought to ask Tehran. 
I mean, they're the ones that are inflaming. Uh, we're trying to contain, they're trying to inflame. Uh, hopefully, uh, they're still at a position where they can reel in uh, these terrorist groups because I think Iran probably has woken up to the fact that the, the region doesn't need a regional war and some of that backsplash could certainly come into Iran. Mm-hmm. Well, as of now, the actual war is still contained between Israel and Hamas. But the other message, in addition to concerns around escalation of this conflict to something more broader regionally that we heard from Secretary of State Antony Blinken while he was traveling throughout the Middle East, is this idea that he presented in Israel yesterday that Israel essentially needs to be pulling back its operations in Gaza, in part because of humanitarian considerations. Yeah. What phase of the war are we now in? Does the phase of the war we are in match where the U.S. would like it to be? Well, I think the United States is sort of nudging Israel to get to that phase. Uh, Israel will say that's already happening inside of Gaza City. We're not doing bombing there. We still have some problems that we've got to clean up down in Khan Yunus. Uh, But the United States wants them to start focusing not on aggregate targets, but high value targets. I think we've seen the attack and and, uh, the strike on both the Hezbollah leader and the Hamas leader in Lebanon are two good examples of, I think, where the United States is pushing uh, the Israelis. And uh, because, as Secretary Blinken said yesterday, we've got to focus on uh, a ceasefire, resettlement of the internally displaced Gazans back to their homes, uh, feeding them and uh, getting some international reconstruction in there. So I think the United States is trying to lead uh, rather than push and try to create incentives for the Israelis to uh, wrap this thing up uh, because in many ways that's the only way they're going to get their hostages back, the infrastructure Hamas destroyed, and the opportunity to take out the Hamas leaders, all of which are Mm -hmm. the terminal objectives announced on October 8th by the government of Israel. We have just a minute left. General Kimmett, how long will the U.S. keep all of these assets in the region? Uh, the nice thing about American capability and at, at the benefit and at the behest of the United States taxpayers is that we have a lot of flexibility. We have a lot of capability. We'll keep it in as long as it's necessary. We'll replace it mm-hmm. if necessary, and then we'll pull it out when no longer necessary. We can do that for an extended period of time. As you saw with the USS Ford being pulled out, and the Baton Ready Group being pulled in. We can do this for an awful long time. It's good to see you, General Mark Kimmett. With us, retired General Mark Kimmett on Bloomberg with some important insights as we try to figure out the way forward here in Israel. And Kaylee, uh, understanding what might happen next with the Secretary of Defense, still an elusive question, I guess. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.